Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features I Passed for White, made in 1960. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. We are back with episode three of The Baton. I'm so glad you're here. I had so much fun talking about the first film score written by John Williams called Daddio in episode two. And please, I really hope you'll listen to that one. And I'm going to have a lot of fun talking about this next film. So after Daddio made its premiere in movie theaters in 1959, John Williams was finally able to add film composer to his resume after a couple of years working as a session player and arranger for other composers. In the time between the release of Daddio and getting his next film job, John Williams was inundated with requests to score TV episodes. With the score to Daddio actually written in 1958, Williams was able to get TV work in such shows as the anthology series Playhouse 90, and the Lee Marvin crime drama M-Squad in 1958. In 1959, he wrote music for one episode of the detective show Markham and was the primary composer for one season of the sitcom Bachelor Father, starring John Forsyth. Not much original music was needed for the show, and Johnny Williams, as he was now calling himself professionally, mainly supplied the music for the opening title and end credits. Here's a bit of that music. Now, John Williams was actually getting some credit on TV shows, not just playing piano for other composers who were writing those themes. While he was enjoying the work he was getting for TV, he would get back into movie theaters in spring 1960 with a film that was decidedly not going to be a B-movie like Daddio. It was called I Passed for White. Now, Before I start talking about the film, I want to warn you that plot spoilers are coming. The movie focused on the life of a woman named Bernice. At first glance, people will think she's a white woman, but she is actually half black, half white. In that era, no one identified as mixed race. You were either black or white, even if your parents were of different races. And Bernice decides to identify as black. She lives with her black grandmother and with her brother, who is also mixed race, but is easily identifiable as black. When she's unable to get a job in Chicago because she writes Negro on her job form, she decides the only solution is to go to New York City where she decides to pass as a white woman named Lila. She gets a nice job and meets a nice white man named Rick. They get married even though there were laws against it, but that would only be if Lila slash Bernice told Rick she was mixed race. When Lila slash Bernice runs into her brother at a club, Rick gets jealous and starts a fight. As the lies grow, Bernice finds herself pregnant and fearful that the baby will be dark-skinned and all of her lies will be exposed. Lila plans to run off and deliver the baby elsewhere without Rick knowing, but she goes into early labor. She awakes from her anesthesia and hysterics and asks if the baby is black. It wasn't, but Rick was in the room and his only thought is that Lila had an affair with the man he doesn't know as her brother. 
Lila denies the affair but doesn't offer up the truth. So she believes the only real solution to the problem is to leave the marriage and return home to her family. In 1960, this film might have been controversial. It was based on a book that was reportedly based on a real person. The U.S. Supreme Court didn't overturn the ban on interracial marriages until 1967 in the famous Loving v. Virginia case, which was also made into a pretty good movie in 2017. All the drama in the film I Passed for White hinged on the fact that everything Bernice was doing was technically illegal. These days, of course, no one needs to hide their mixed-race heritage, and there's no law prohibiting interracial marriages or outlawing job discrimination based on race. It was an eye-opener of a film for me in the sense that I was looking at a moment when time when the rights I now have as an African-American man were not available. But it also made me happy to know that things have definitely changed for the better in the past 60 years. Sonia Wilde plays Bernice, and in almost every scene, she is in overacting mode. While the film itself never tries to tone down its melodrama, it would have been nice to see a sincere performance by Wilde to help ground the film into reality. Rick, her husband, is played by James Franciscus, who tries very hard to be earnest in his performance, but wades into melodrama in his final confrontation with Bernice slash Lila, and by then it's become a soap opera given a theatrical release. It's kind of sad that director and screenwriter Fred Wilcox chose to emulate the director Douglas Sirk here. Sirk was famous, or really he was quite infamous in Hollywood, for making larger-than-life melodramas. Wilcox's film really feels like it belongs in the Douglas Sirk canon. John Williams' score for I Pass for White does veer into melodramatic territory often throughout the film, but he has a pretty decent start with this opening title music. With this 70-second piece of music is John Williams' first ever official attempt at writing a theme. In terms of film score, a theme is a melody that is associated with a character, action, or place, and often repeated in the film in association with that character, action, or place. This is not something that John Williams invented, though. Many of the great film scores of the 1930s and 40s and 50s had great themes that helped make them popular. And here's one of them. That's Tara's theme from the 1939 classic Gone with the Wind, written by Max Steiner.
I've been to many concerts where this is played, and a lot of people recognize it instantly, even people like me who weren't alive when Gone with the Wind was in theaters. So, going back to I Pass for White, uh, we get a lovely piece of music I'm going to call Bernice's theme, and it fits right into the film. The notes climb up the musical scale before descending down, then repeating again on strings before the French horn takes it over. On screen during the opening titles, we see Bernice examining her facial features while the music suggests a bit of turmoil underneath the beautiful face we see, and a prelude to the tragic events that lie ahead. It's not just music written to put sound into the opening credits. It's music that I believe was written to speak about a character who has not yet spoken. We know that John Williams is one of the masters of the concept of writing themes, or what is really known as leitmotif, and it's fascinating to see him grasp the concept so well in just his second film. So just to give you some background on leitmotif, it was made popular in the mid-1800s with Richard Wagner and his Ring Cycle Opera, and it continued to be used in classical music before film composers latched onto the concept and put it into popular entertainment. The use of leitmotif in I Pass for White isn't very strong since the woman known as Bernice doesn't, Bernice doesn't really exist for much of the film. So we're not going to hear her theme very much. Williams got to write a nice saxophone piece for Bernice's brother, who is a saxophone player in a traveling jazz band. It kind of serves as a theme for the brother and sister, and it comes back when the two are reunited later in the film, but it really doesn't get much play. The first real instance of underscore takes place as Bernice leaves the office building where she's turned down for a job after admitting she is a Negro woman. The music works in that it helps us understand that Bernice is making a major decision at this point, even though she never says it, and we don't fully know what it is until maybe 10 minutes later. After she packs her bags and leaves without saying goodbye to her family, Bernice boards a plane to New York with her theme music following along. A few minutes later, our next piece of music has Bernice now calling herself Lila, looking through the one ads in her hotel room. The music starts off fine enough with some lovely strings and flute.
But then the tone of the music takes a 180 degree turn. This is the type of music you might hear on Saturday morning cartoons, not in a drama about a mixed-race woman. The xylophone and flute run at the end of the piece take place when Lila opens a window and feels a chilly breeze. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting a comedic moment in a dramatic film. I mean, some of the best dramas have light moments in them, but this one in I Pass for White should have been cut. If for director Fred Wilcox asked John Williams to put some lightness into the music, well, John Williams definitely obliged. So I want to take this moment to talk a bit about the relationship between a director and composer in the process of writing a film score. Often, the composer does not get free reign to write whatever type of music he or she wants. The director and composer watch the film together, figure out which scenes need music, and discuss the tone of the score and what emotions it needs to convey. Sometimes the two will not agree, but in the end, it is the director's film and the composer has to write the music as directed. Even after John Williams becomes a worldwide celebrity, he still has to write, mus write his film scores based mostly on the director's wishes. Sometimes John Williams is able to override a particular decision, but... That was most likely not possible in 1960 when he was just 28 years old and still green in the ways of film score writing. So I mentioned that John Williams tried his hand at writing a particular theme in this film called Bernice's Theme, and it was his first official theme music. He actually did write another theme, which I'm going to call the Lying Theme. There's not really a strong melody involved with it, more of an orchestration of woodwinds played on the low end. It's first played at the 42-minute mark of the movie after Lila outright lies to her future mother-in-law about why her family can't come to her wedding. And I just realized that Lila lies. Interesting name choice. Uh, the music comes back about 45 minutes later when Lila is caught in another big lie. She's told her in-laws that her parents are in Venezuela and can't be reached to inform them of Lila's pregnancy. Lila's mother-in-law insists on calling the parents in Venezuela but Lila keeps trying to come up with excuses why the call shouldn't be made. The scene gets pretty tense because you get the feeling that someone is going to catch Lila in her lies. But as you will hear, she manages to find a way out of it. While you listen to this scene, pay attention to the music underneath. Let me put the call in for you. What's the hotel? No. No, I just don't want to call her now. Besides, I'm not even sure she's still there. It's late and I'm tired. Rick, I think we ought to go home. All right, all right, Lila. There's no reason to be rude about it. Mother was just trying oh, I'm to... I'm terribly sorry, Mrs. Slayton. I didn't mean to be rude. I'm not feeling well tonight. Rick, please. Now you've got her all upset. Come on, come on. I'll take you home. I'm sorry, Lila, dear. I didn't intend to upset you. This is a strong choice of orchestration by John Williams, and he makes sure that the music doesn't drown out the scene, but it certainly helps to increase the tension without us really noticing, and that, in the end, is what a film composer should be doing. Despite all the weirdness Lila is exhibiting, the family is still excited about the pregnancy, and they go to a club to celebrate. 
Lila ends up dancing with a couple of other men, even getting a little too much into the music, which was written by John Williams. Most composers aren't hired until after filming is complete, unless the film needs original music played on screen. This is called source music, and John has had to write a lot of it in his career. You might think of the Cantina Band music in Star Wars, but that music was actually written and performed long after filming and inserted into the audio mix later. We'll see some of the source music he has written as we go along in this journey on this podcast. For this film, I think Williams was already hired for the movie before filming took place. I believe the saxophone theme the brother played was written to be performed live, and the band music you just heard was most likely performed live. Or, what could have happened was that the band in the film wasn't really playing music. The director had different music playing over loudspeakers for the actors to dance to, then John Williams wrote something new to the same beat and rhythm, using the instruments the band is playing in the film and recorded it long after filming was done. In either case, it's a nice piece of music that fell right into John Williams' comfort zone because you can hear kind of the jazz influences there. I had said earlier that this film is extremely melodramatic in its acting and dialogue. Though some of his music so far has told the line of melodrama through the first hour, it really goes into overdrive in a scene when Lila decides to run off and have her baby without Rick's knowledge. She's walking through the rain trying to get a taxi. Now the music suggests that this scene is life or death for Lila, but anyone who has been to New York knows that not being able to get a taxi in the rain in New York is pretty standard. I like to think that John Williams learned a lot from writing the music for this scene. He will write music for scenes very much like this throughout his career, but I remember him exercising much more restraint in the music he writes later on. The orchestration of the music is going to be very key and the way it's conducted as well. And we're going to hear a lot of these moments through the journey of this podcast. So, Lila goes into early labor and has the baby. She's unconscious during delivery, which she didn't want. She wakes up hysterical and asks to see the baby. She asks if it's black and doesn't realize that her husband is in the room when she asks this. Rick tells Lila that the baby has died, and this is what happens. Oh, my baby. 
Just as we discussed in the scene involving Lila in the rain, this is another overdone scene in terms of the music. I watched it a few times and thought that it would have been better with more compassionate music with a series of descending notes to help us mourn the loss of the baby. As it's written, the strings climb up the musical scale and cause us to feel an entirely different emotion. If the music instead had been put into the scene earlier when we see that Rick is in the room when she screams about the baby being, being black, it might have worked better. So this is actually a case of the right music put into the wrong spot. And that's not something John Williams would do a lot in his career, but that's all part of the learning curve. And our final piece of underscore in this film comes when Lila decides to leave Rick and return home to the life she once knew. Finally, we get to hear Bernice's theme as the taxi arrives at the house. The notes are still the same even though the emotion behind the scene is different. Strings are playing the melody while the French horn accompanies it. The strings keep playing, but the trumpet now takes over for the French horn. And now the emotion of the theme is triumphant instead of sorrowful just by transferring instruments. As much as I really wasn't rooting for Bernice at the end of the film because she left her marriage for no real reason, I did smile a bit when those trumpets played. John Williams was telling us that it's okay to be happy for Bernice, so that's what I thought. I'll be happy for her. She's where she belongs, and she's going to be happy again. So let's take a listen to Bernice's theme again at the end of the film, and I promise I will not talk over it. As I said earlier, this is John Williams' first instance of writing thematic material in a film score. It's absolutely wonderful writing that is pretty simple musically and not too complex in terms of the orchestration. I don't think it's among the top 20 main themes that John Williams has ever written, but as it's the first official one he's done, it's worth noting and celebrating. And that's a look at the music from the film I Pass for White, the second film score written by John Williams. I'm really curious to know what you think, so I hope that you'll let me know through the comments. 
because again, it's really just so different from Daddio. And it just obviously illustrates how much of a chameleon he could be and his willingness to write for much different music. But, of course, John Williams didn't get much time to think about this score and, it, and its impact on the film because the following month, he returned to the teeny bopper genre with another film about misguided youth. And that's called Because They're Young, and it starred Dick Clark. Yes, that Dick Clark. We'll ex- explore that film in episode four of The Baton. So as I said, I love to hear from you about the show. And you know, I just might read some of your comments in a future episode. You can reach me by email at jeffswim at aol.com, at jeffswim on Twitter, and you can also find me on Facebook, or also submit your comments on the show's website, thebatonpodcast.podbean.com. Thanks everyone for listening, and until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>